0: Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
1: Welcome back to Greenwash, here with me, Jaspreet Boparai and my co host, Don Nicholson. Now, on any given day, if I just Google Antarctica, warming, NZ, and filter the news by just New Zealand alone, there's a whole lot of scary stories that I can see there. In fact, Googling right now, I can find about a month ago, there was an emergency summit in Wellington where they needed to have a look at why Antarctica is warming at five times faster than anything else they expected. So there's, there's a whole lot of uh, hysteria about Antarctica going on. And we thought, who better to get on to talk about Antarctica and lots more than our guest last week, Peter Foster, Peter is a retired Dunedin secondary school teacher. And as I see him across the Zoom right now, I am trying to compare him with this image I see from the Antarctica New Zealand Bulletin, where it says Peter Foster, officer in charge of the Wanda station, a 39-year-old science teacher. Who has a BSc degree in chemistry from Otago University? A bit of a change from those times, Peter. Welcome on. Oh, much
2: yes, <laughs> yes. So there were my my two trips to Antarctica were absolutely marvelous uh, experience in, in one's life, and I had the the good fortune to, on the first trip, to go to, to Lake Vanda to Vanda Station. Now, um, Vanda is in an area called the Dry Valleys. It's uh, stretching across Antarctica from from east to west, is the Transantarctic Mountains, and so about two thirds of Antarctica is is in what they call East Antarctica, uh, and that is all ice. It's an ice dome, and the, uh, the center of that is is not where the South Pole is. It's much further east from that. But the center of that is about four thousand meters of ice thick. Wow. And from that dome, the winds flow down. Uh, the Transantarctic Mountains block the ice flowing into that part of the um, McMurdo Sound. And so the valleys, because the air is so incredibly dry, the snow is evaporated and leaving a rock base of something like you know, 1,000 square kilometres, just rock, uh, which is marvelous to look at because you have these. Um, very colourful uh, sills. You've got a layer of uh, of uh, limestone type stuff and then a, a volcanic sill that slips through it and then above that you've got coal seams and all sorts of things. Anyway,
1: so coming back Peter, to
2: these claims, sorry, Hugh.
1: Mm, I was about to ask you, what got you interested? I mean, how come you were earmarked for that uh, trip? What got you selected?
2: Uh, well, it's uh, Vander is about um, no, I forget which units they use. Because the Americans use miles, of course. And pilots use nautical miles, and New Zealanders use kilometres. But I think it was about two hundred and fifty kilometres from Scott Base to to Vander Station. And um, I had a friend who had been leader there before. But being in an isolated position like that, they are looking for people who have demonstrated. Uh, an understanding of mountain terrain and uh, an ability to, to um, be independent uh, and operate in mountain environment in an independent way uh, because you have to make decisions. You've got no one else in support. You're there on your own with your little team of guys and you have um, other people coming in and out, which you have to look after. Uh, that was basically the job, your hotel manager. But you, you needed all these skills, so things like having a uh, radio operating skills and first aid skills and cooking skills and all of those sort of things. So they all added up to uh, and mountaineering skills. Um, uh, put me in the in the hot seat for after for a while. <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> took a few applications. <laughs> the finally um, we got there. And um, um, just just going back even a step. Uh, uh, before we get to the ice, what's, where did you leave from? Did you leave from Christchurch, Invercargill, or where did you leave you know, and what you, did you travel in?
2: Uh, you fly from Christchurch, uh, yeah. and the early in the season, they have a, a, a runway on the McMurdo Sound sea ice, and they prepare that runway for months. So once the sea ice forms, they're out there filling cracks with water and brushing it and grooming it right through until the time when the ice is two, three metres thick, uh, which is what's needed for the big uh, the C-141 starlifters, uh, which is what we went down on. Uh, and then they, nowadays they're using an even bigger plane, the Galaxy, and they fly and they land on the ice. and uh, They have a, a point of no return. So for a starlifter, it's a five-hour trip, uh, but at four hours – they have to decide whether they can land at McMurdo or not. And if they can't, they've got to turn back to Christchurch because they don't have fuel to fly right down there, not be able Mm -hmm. to land and fly back to Christchurch too far. Well, the Hercules is also a four-hour return to the point of no return. Well, that's an eight-hour flight, so you're only halfway there. (laughs) Uh, So first time I went down the Starlifter, the pilot said something after many hours. I don't know what he said. I couldn't hear it. Four hours later, the door's open, and we're back in Christchurch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A bit of a joyride, a bit of a
2: joyride. (laughs) Two days later, the second day, and um, what they do is is, uh, when you're about half an hour out of McMurdo, they they lower the temperature in the aircraft. Now, the, the Starlifter is not like a modern aircraft. It's got webbing seats down the side and rows of webbing seats down the middle of the plane. And so there's about 30, 40 people in there. And behind you is a whole heap of cargo. And um, so they they lower the temperature and you have to get into all your Antarctic gear so that when they open the doors, you're appropriately dressed for the environment. The doors open to a brilliantly fine day. And uh, the the air is minus 25 degrees, which sort of takes your breath away. (laughs) But...
0: So it was a great, great, uh, great experience. Uh, and first impressions when you get out of that airplane is, as you said, a bright. Um, the day you got there, anyway, bright, uh, bright day. There's a glare um, from the from the sun, and and with the white of the ice, is it is it something you need to have tinted glasses on as soon as you go outside? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: we uh, my second trip down, we worked at Cape Vander. Is sorry at Cape Hellet, and we were, we were carting material onto the sea ice, uh, driving tractor trains of goodies that had to go to the bottom of the sea. We are carting them over the sea ice. The moment you left the land and walked onto the sea ice, it was literally like walking into an oven. And we had to have a sun cream on the, on the underside of your nose and underside of your chin and underside of your ears because you get burnt there just from the reflected sunlight. Wow. So it
0: was really, really quite, quite intense. It's interesting. Yeah. I've just, just recovered from welding flash and uh I can now understand what ultraviolet, intense ultraviolet can do to your eyes. Oh, uh, yes. So no wonder you no wonder you took uh, good precautions. And um of course getting into that sub um, you know, getting conditioned to it, is it is it days or is it weeks, or is it you never get conditioned to it? What is it?
2: Oh no, no, you get you, I mean, if you get outside, you've got the right clothing on. Um Sometimes, if you're at Scott Base and you, we did some work, we had stuff in the hangar we had to get ready, which was a you know 100 meters walk mm-hmm. between buildings. And if you didn't have your jackets on, you you get halfway and see, feel this really intense cold grabbing you at the chest. Wow, and uh, that was you know, you, you realize that you couldn't really
0: go out without your, your good thermal gears on, you wouldn't sit, so, you wouldn't. So, I I imagine today, a few days ago, I saw a mod, you know, the recent uh, expedition down or heading somewhere with all that flashist machinery. I couldn't believe it. It looked like space age stuff and all the people dressed up in their best, um, most modern kit. I imagine you were sort of somewhere between Ed Hillary's Ferguson TEAs. And uh with tracks on and uh and and almost skin jackets to uh something. Uh yeah, you know, can I imagine in the eighties we didn't quite have the uh the flash gear that we've got today. What were you what well, was your was, dress uh, like? Yeah,
2: it was still pretty flash. You got issued with a complete set of clothing. Uh, in fact most of the time we never wore the big jackets or the boots that we, we were provided with, the mock look type boots. Because uh, I was at Vander, which is we're not walking on ice, we're walking on gravel. And so gym shoes were a much better footwear than the, oh. the big horrible boots they provided us with.
0: Um, so, okay, so let's move on to Vanda because its I've just read a little bit about it. It does seem that it's a bit unique uh, in that it's a, a, a lake that's fed from coastal glaciers that obviously melt inward. Yes, yes, that's right. It's, uh, the, there's a... Um,
2: um, Glacial ice along the coast, which has come from uh, when the sea ice breaks out, which it does. So McMurdo is is an ocean. Uh, McMurdo sounds an ocean. And uh, it gets filled with ice during the winter, uh, right out to the edge of Antarctica and beyond. So there's about 16,000 to 20,000 square kilometres of ice that form around Antarctica go over winter. And as the summer comes on and the water absorbs a bit of heat through the ice, it melts and breaks up. And then the winds will blow it out. So it'll sit there one day, and next day, a wind will come up and it'll blow in the ice out, and you have open ocean. Mm-hmm. Now, the moment you've got open ocean, you've got evaporation. But when that evaporation is blown inland, the moment it hits the land, it precipitates. And so this is where you get this glacier forming along the coast. Once it's dropped that precipitation, of course, then it's dry, and so it doesn't fill the dry valleys with snow. But one of the interesting things was um, we had a we had a drilling rig that was uh, putting seismometers in uh, down valley from Vander Station. Uh, and they, of course, were, were outside all day, 24-7, at their drilling rig. And one day they called up, because uh, we were a five kilometres, in the further in the valley, they called up and said, "Well, um, oh, really cold today. What? What the hell's the temperature?" And I said, oh, "It's only it's only so five degrees." Which that was a common daytime temperature event five degrees. Oh, I can't be! It can't be! It's bloody freezing here. But what had happened is the sea ice had blown out, and the humidity had gone from sort of like ten percent, which was the normal, up to eighty percent. And it was that increased humidity which made them feel so damn cold to them. <laughs> but the other thing is that when the sea ice went out, instead of the nice fine days we have been having, we got cloud because what happens in the dry valleys is they're are an area of rock mm. and that rock absorbs the sunlight and warms and causes the air to rise. So you've got this area of five 6,000 square kilometres, whatever it is, of the dry valleys. That has this, the air suddenly starts to rise, and when it does, of course, it becomes it's replaced by air coming in up the valley from from the ocean, and that 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 wind's now that wind gets up for most of the summer. It would start at about nine o'clock, plus or minus one or two minutes, and it would jump straight up to twenty knots, and stay at that all day until till late afternoon. And then it would it, it would disappear again. And I think it's related to the angle of the sun very much. But anyway, when, this, when the sea ice went out and the, the wind air, 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 com- air coming in was had clouds, and when the clouds touched the hills, they left snow behind. So it didn't actually snow as in snow falling from clouds. The snow was simply the cloud touching the, uh, the colder hills and causing the precipitation. So they became quite snow-covered. In the middle of summer, because of that, hmm. the Lake Vanda was um, uh, yes, it's an inland lake and it's about two hundred and seventy something meters deep, um, and its uh, its level is very dependent on the climate. So that as the climate warms, you get more water coming inland from the from the uh, co- coastal glacier, and the lake level fills. But when it's cold, when the climate is much colder, that that doesn't occur so much. And so the lake level drops. And so you could see, looking from the base station at Vandy, you could see rings around the hillside where the, the lake had been at past levels. And I said to the surveyors who were there one time, I said, how high is that highest ring above the, the lake? And so he gave me a a little device to carry around there. I located it and pointed it at him. And it was 46 metres above the current height of the lake. And um, Trevor Chin, who who was a a glaciologist who did a humongous amount of work in the Dry Valleys, he said that happened 5,000 years ago. So 5,000 years ago, it was considerably warmer and the lake was 46 metres higher than what it was when I was there. Yeah, at the time, which was the mid-80s, and we have had, we have, we have had some global warming, uh, the lake was rising at about uh, 300 millimetres a year. Well, actually, it would rise 600 millimetres and then it would drop back 300 millimetres over winter due to ablation. Yeah, ablation is the surface of the ice going straight to subliming, straight to gas. Because the air is so dry... It doesn't go through a liquid phase. It just goes from from solid ice, snow, or gas. And the surfaces lose about 300 millimetres a year like that. So the net gain per year was about 300 millimetres. Eventually, they decided they would have to shift Vander because if that carried on, it was going to be like to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like the, the Tavalu and politicians they are going to be having their, uh, conducting their meetings underwater <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> now uh, Peter if I could ask you now to comment on this recent article it is by Olivia Vernon and, and stuff and for our listeners they might have uh, you might remember that Don and I have spoken in the past about the forever project that carries all the climate news under the stuff banner now this article came out last month October 2023 10 new zealand's 10 new zealand's worth she means of antarctic ice lost in an alarming drop off a cliff as the southern continent begins to melt prematurely this in turn led to an emergency summit of scientists in wellington to warn that how this low level of sea ice could be affecting our weather NEVA scientist Natalie Robinson said she is very worried about her children's future. So 10 New Zealand's worth of ice dropped off last month. Should we be worried? Uh,
2: no, not at all. There, there, there's, you have a number of scientists who want to enhance their research projects and they do it by making claims, um, for example, we often have claims that the Antarctica's the glaciers are melting. They're talking of two glaciers, they're talking of the Pine Island Glacier and the Thwaites Glacier, which are Ooh. in West Antarctica. And they feed into the same area, both in the same area. And they're underlined by active volcanoes. And this is known. <laughs> okay. Now the the um so that affects the, the, the meltwater underneath the volcanoes and affects the temperature of that shore. But if we look at Antarctica as a whole, there are several recent papers showing that Antarctica is cooling. East Antarctica has cooled this is since the IGY of uh, 1957. East Antarctica has cooled by about 2.8 degrees, and West Antarctica by about 1.6 degrees. Only the Antarctic Peninsula. A very very small area is showing any warming, and so if you want to, you know, make a big issue about it, you go to the Antarctic Peninsula, and you you highlight the fact that this is warmed, and ignore 99.9% of the rest of Antarctica, which is cooling. The other thing that, and I don't know how much of their data is still affected by this, but about ten years ago, there was uh, they suddenly discovered that the the thermometers that were being being installed uh, throughout the, there's a lot of bases in the Antarctic Peninsula. And a lot of these bases were installing temperature thermometers, temperature uh, recording devices. And they discovered that, uh, you know how some of the outside things that you buy have got a fluted cover over the top to, so that the sun can't get out of them, but the air can get through them. Mm. Well, they had that. But what they forgot was that you've got reflection from the ice. And reflection from the ice was coming up through these loopers, hitting the sensors and giving false readings. Now, the extent to which that's corrected, I've got no idea. But uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'm quite happy to accept that the Antarctic Peninsula is warming, but it's a very, very small part. The other thing is is that, that you discover when you go to Antarctica is that it's very, very difficult for the air get above zero because to Mm. get above zero it has got to melt ice Mm. and the ice takes a lot of energy to melt huge amount of energy to ice it takes if you took a gram of water to turn it into ice uh, take a gram of water it takes one calorie an old parlance, one calorie to raise Mm. the temperature of that one gram by one degree c it would take 80 calories to turn that one gram from ice into water. So you've got a huge amount of energy involved in that conversion from, from uh, ice to water. And so it's very, very difficult to melt the surface of Antarctica. And while you get the odd warm day in the summer, the majority of the time is, is radiating. So energy comes into the world in the, in the equatorial region and it leaves the world in the polar regions. The radiation to space is much higher in the polar regions. Yeah. Uh, so that tends to be cooling. And the other thing, when it comes to the ocean, the temperature at which, remember the sea ice that forms around Antarctica every winter? It's uh, sixteen to 20,000 square kilometres. Right. The temperature at which the ice forms is minus 1.96 degrees.
1: Mm.
2: Now, we have two kinds of ice in Antarctica. We have sea ice, which is frozen seawater, and we have the glacial ice, which uh, where the glaciers are moving off the land and into the sea. And, of course, once they're in the sea, they're floating, and some of them move out hundreds of kilometres into the sea. And eventually, tidal action causes cracks to form, and and the, the ends of glaciers break off, and they become the icebergs. Of which you might have uh, fifty to hundred meters out of the out of the water, which means you've got four hundred to seven hundred meters under the water. Uh, so, so the, and here at the temperature of the water is not warm enough to melt uh, land formed ice because it's colder than zero. Now, it doesn't stay that way, of course. There's warmer patches, but that very cold water underneath the forming ice, uh, when the sea ice forms, it excludes salt. And so the salt makes the water very dense. And that very cold, very dense water then sinks to the bottom and becomes what they call the thermohaline current that travels around the world in the deepest bits of the ocean and eventually resurfaces somewhere. Uh, but uh, so the, the, this the, that sort of sends cold water right up into the tropics. So Antarctica, uh, and the other thing is that the amount of ice there is vast. And some people have done some calculations, and even if we increase the temperature of Antarctica by whatever, 10 degrees or whatever, it would take thousands of years to melt that ice. But you're not going to get the ice, you know, sea level's suddenly jumping up uh, in 10 years. You know, that, that's, that's fanciful nonsense.
0: Mm. And uh, some of these people need to be told that. OK, sorry. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, plenty of media. I mean, Jaspreet gave an example of um, 10 New Zealands. So that's a million square miles of um, ice that apparently broke away um, overnight sort of stuff uh, thanks to the Forever Project um, knowledge. Well, um,
2: clearly, yeah, that's... The, thing that, the thing that everyone might say is that The Lambert Glacier, which is in East Antarctica, is 400 kilometres, I think it's kilometres, maybe 400 miles, across. And it flows out into the sea. And there was an iceberg that broke off it some years ago, and it was something like 370 kilometres by 100 kilometres. Yeah, that's... That's half the South Island yes. one iceberg. Now, but this is normal. The ice is forming all the time. It is flowing down out into the sea, and these icebergs break off, and they drift around the world for
0: five, ten years and gradually break up and disappear. So that left-field question then is about perhaps 10 or 15 years ago, there was a big iceberg uh, well, it was probably quite small in the scheme of things, but drifting off the coast of the South Island near you, Peter. Right. And and I remember yes. Shrek, the, uh, the um, woolly Merino was taken out there in a helicopter and... Um, <laughs> and put on a put on the red carpet. I mean, it was yes. a great marketing gimmick by um Perium. <laughs> but that how did that iceberg get so far north? I mean, we're at that's about 47 degrees where it ended up and where did it go to? Where did it go to after well, that because we never tracked it. Well, the no, air. they they
2: they gradually get smaller. They tend to break mm. up over time mm. and and gradually they melt. Uh, but it takes years. Right. It, uh,
0: and um well, did it end up at the Chatham Islands or somewhere, this one? I mean, we'd, I know you're saying they broke up, but it was quite a big bit. I mean, it, clearly it, uh, it went somewhere, and I imagine it was tracked, although I don't recall any news yeah, saying where, yeah, where it ended no, up. They, they do they do track them, um, but they, they're just at the
2: mercy of currents and wind. Yes, yes. And because they've got this proportion above the oh, above the sea, that's, that's big sail, you know, you've got – You've got a few kilometres or something, and it's 100 metres high. That's an enormous sail to be
0: sent by any wind. Yeah, it's not um, like a, gla- a glass of ice, uh, a glass of water with with one block of ice in it. It's not quite like that, is it? Yeah, know sort no, of a bit no, more yeah. stable, a bit more stable. Hmm. That's right. But we, when we're, I was at uh, Cape Hellet,
2: uh, which is 87, and... Uh, the bay at Cape Hallett had a number of icebergs that had been blown into the bay and had trapped there. And um, we, of course, were going out on the sea ice, the sea ice formed all around them. And one of the interesting things was that about 20, 30 meters out from, because these icebergs have vertical walls
1: Mm.
2: and about 20, 30 meters out from the wall, a melt pool started to form. Uh, And, we thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. It's is a reflection off the ice, blah-de-blah. Blah. Uh, and so, anyway, we took photos of us standing in front of this solid block wall. And the next day, we heard this rumbling, and it went on, rumbling, rumbling, rumbling. It was out to sea somewhere. We, we uh, didn't go out that day, but we next day, we went out, and we found that a section of this iceberg, just where we had been standing for photo photos, had broken off vertically, and its big bulbous base that was under the water had crashed up through the sea ice. Uh, wow. Exactly where we had been standing. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, if it happened a day earlier, we we, we might have been
0: stranded on some big black blocks of ice. But, well, but uh, might have been might have been permanently in those blocks of ice. A little while well, later,
2: that's that's right. It would not have been a nice experience.
1: No. Gosh. Uh, Stunning that. And I have asked again, this is a left field comment, but I'll put it there. I've uh, often asked friends in the army in India because different uh, folks I know have been posted at Siachen Glacier. Now that's a 78 kilometer across glacier uh, of the Karakoram ranges, which is called yes. the highest battlefield in the world. And I keep asking them, will this, will this melt sometime? And, you know, we'll no longer need to have men posted there because each year it claims at least a dozen military lives, that glacier. Yeah. And no, nothing nothing's been actually happening there. And it it sounds probably a bit flippant because it's cost so much in human lives, but I hear nothing there of anything happening. And they keep saying this is happening in Asia and that's happening in Pakistan, but that glacier,
2: yeah, 6,000
1: meters or 20,000 feet, it's pretty static there.
2: Yes. There's there's a lot of, um, there are some glaciers which are definitely retreating mm, and there's some yeah. which are advancing. Mm. Uh, it's, I think we only see the doom and gloom me- messages in the media. Uh, yeah. we, we don't see the other side. And I happened to look at um, a boat trip that was going up the glaciers in Alaska. Uh, you can go from Vancouver and go and visit these glaciers. But it had marked on the valley with sides of the map So the dates at which that was where the snout was at those dates. Now, most of the melt occurred 100 years ago. The melt in the last 30 years is quite insignificant uh, compared to the amount of movement back of the front uh, since 1850. You know, the 1930s were an incredibly warm period, probably warmer than now, but uh, the way the records are being dealt with and the limited records that were available at that time, it's a bit difficult to tell.
0: Isn't it interesting how how history is easily forgotten? Uh, And it's interesting, uh, in this last period, I've read an article that was uh, penned out of the United Nations in 1982 that said carbon dioxide was a fabulous gas to have because it actually aided um, the growing of things and the greening of the planet. That was only yes. 1982, and yet, uh, yes. try and get that. Try and get that from the United Nations IPCC today, and we might be struggling because. Well, that's, well, that's not, right, because sure.
2: it's a political political thing. It's, yeah. Uh, I mean, the temperature going back to Antarctica. I said that Antarctica has been cooling for 50 years, mm. uh, and but you know, people don't want to recognise that, and so no. we're not getting told the truth. The other thing is in America, in the USA. Uh, a guy by the name of Anthony Watts analysed a lot of their their MET stations and found that something like 80% of them didn't meet the requirement of MET stations because whereas they once might have been out in the country, they were now surrounded by roads and, and air conditioning um, blasts and, and all the rest of it and were reading anything but the actual temperature. And uh, so as a result of that paper... Uh, the, the U.S. Um, people set up a whole network of, of temperature stations, which are out in rural areas, automated equipment that doesn't need any, any uh, adjustments to it at all. And that's been recording since I think about 2003. And it shows no warming at all. You know, you get warm years and cold years, or whatever, but the, the, you can draw a line through the whole thing and there's no net warming.
0: So, no. so was it true, just talking about that in New Zealand then, was it? Is it true, is it my understanding correct there that uh, some of our um, stations were moved um, and adjustments made to our temperature records that perhaps were not as accurate as they needed to be? And so they embellished the warming. And, of course, we did have this urban heat island effect uh, from yes. buildings and tarmacs, as you talked about. Um, yes. Um, the, the seven station series is what's got in my head. I've got the seven... Right, yes, that was yes. That was
2: initially done by Jim Salinger, and it, it showed this warming of about 0.9 degrees over 100 years or whatever. And that was challenged by a number of scientists um, uh, who uh, came up with a value of 0.3, and they were using Salinger's methodology. So they challenged... NIWA to justify how they managed to get 0.9. And Newa went and supposedly redid their calculations and they took it to the Australian Bureau of Meteorology for verification. But the Australian Bureau of Meteorology is involved in the same hijacking of data, left, right, and centre. And yep. so it's like, you know, uh, it's like asking your pal to, to do it. Uh, So it was not a, you know, the integrity of that response is, you know, have to be challenged. But
1: hmm. yeah, integrity. I I wish we we need more of it. But I think the very definition of uh, what is integrity to science has changed. I, you know, listeners, Don and I, we've spoken about NZ sea rise maps and we sea level rise modeling that's happening probably at a place near you because. like yes. it or not, New Zealand is ultimately made up of islands, long, narrow yes. islands. And NEVA is now the, t- using this Antarctic modelling on its its maps. So the climate change and warming temperatures, NEVA says, its website says, are causing sea level to rise on an average by 3.5 millimetres per year. This sea level rise is caused by the thermal expansion of ocean by melting land-based glaciers, and by the melting of Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets. So the same noise keeps getting amplified, amplified, until it changes into something that has very dramatic consequences for my life, the way yes. I live, where I live, everything, my insurance premiums even.
2: Yes, well, I think it was Lenin that uh, said, if you tell a lie often enough, people believe it. And, and Hitler and Mein Kampf added to that and say, if you're going to tell a lie, make it a big one. <laughs> so I think we got the combination there. But the, that sea rise project is is uh, really a disgrace. And we talked about that last time. Mm. But the thing is that they would be talking about 30 to 50 millimetres in Dunedin. NIWA has said that South Dunedin, the, the sea would have to rise 30 centimetres to be an issue. And at the current rate of change, that would take 220 years. So it's not really an issue. Now, the other thing which I didn't mention was that if to reach 50 centimetre increase by 2050 would require the sea level tomorrow to start rising at 20 millimetres a year, not the 1.36 it's currently going at. Now, if sea level rise is going to happen, it's not going to jump from 1.36 to 20 overnight. It's going to gradually increase. I think we would have decades of warning from that tide gauge that things were starting to change. But as yet, there is no indication whatsoever. So all of this action taken by councils is quite premature.
1: It almost is, Peter, it sounds to me like they're telling us to disbelieve our own eyes what we are seeing, what we are witnessing, that, you know, yes. tide levels and so on. And that's what yes. science science has come to. It's like, let's look at this, but deny what's in front of the naked eye, easily that's observable. Right.
2: That's right. I, I, I used to, to uh, when I was at university, uh, back in uh, 64, <laughs> I used to go rowing with the university crew. And, and then um, there rowing building and the ramp that they used on the Targo Harbour that got taken over by the Targa boys and so back in the 75, 76 somewhere around there I used to help Morris Jones coach rowing for Otago boys from that same ramp and then in in uh, uh, 98 I took over running the rowing at Targa boys and we're still rowing from the same thing and damned if I could see any change
0: from when I was there as a student. And tell me, South Benedin, it had fairly really good pumps to keep itself pumped, clean and <laughs> dry, didn't it? And uh, you've got some new yeah. pumps there, and I gather they didn't work so flash. What was that all about? Well, part
2: of the problem with South Dunedin is it's sort of like a basin mm-hmm. beneath the hills, and the water all rushes down there. And if the, if the... If the drains are all blocked with leaves and the sumps, and mud sumps, are not cleaned out of mud, then the water doesn't get away fast enough. Yep. But the other problem during that particular flood of South Dunedin was that one of the pumps was wired in reverse; it was actually pumping water back into the city. <laughs> but I, I think we
0: talked about that last time, didn't we? Oh, uh, <laughs> it's just—it's a, a fantastic story. It's like all an right, April I- is- joke.
1: It's, that is from 2016. Now, this particular news article doesn't carry if it was reversed or not, but what it says is Dunedin Council concedes flood fault June 2016 because a faulty pumping station made last year, so 2015, South Dunedin flood 20 centimetres deeper than it would have been. The council made the admission at a rowdy public meeting at Nations Church last night about the flooding that damaged 1,200 homes and businesses in South Dunedin. Interesting, isn't yep. it, how these things happen? Yes.
0: Yep. <laughs> Intriguing. Hey, well, look, we've we've got a few minutes left. We need to um probably give a bit more time to another subject that's dear to your heart and dear to ours, and it's um the greenwashing about methane and even nitrous oxide in terms of the New Zealand, oh, in terms of the world really. And and it's it's apparently damaging um warming effect. Um, you're quite passionate about this Peter. What's uh what's your take on all this? In fact, I know that you have um you've analyzed a lot of output from a lot of people and and have got a clear clearly defined um uh, aspect to it. Yeah, I was just saying we might need more than a few minutes. Yeah. I know. I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, we might need to get a whole segment to it, you know. If, so, if
2: Okay, we'll just carry on, shall we? Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh. Why not? Why not? Okay. Well, the the situation is this that Back in November last year, uh, Beef and Lamb held a meeting in Invercargill in which they gave David Frame, their their climate advisor, a chance to tell farmers that they should be paying for methane because they were causing rises in temperature. When David Frame was challenged, and and with the Wine Garden and Happer material, he was very caustic about it. In fact, what he said showed he hadn't read the paper. But he was asked if he would meet with Sheehan, Tom Sheehan, who was about to come out here, and he refused point blank. He wasn't going to talk to Tom So the next thing we have is in, in June, Tom Sheehan comes out here and does lectures throughout the country. And they must have had a significant effect because here we now have David Frame, not only having a podcast with Brian Gibson uh, on on where he set out with his sole aim was to denigrate she and Hepper and Wine Garden uh, and justify his own position. But then he gets a, a full page article in the in the farming weekly farmers weekly where he, he repeats a lot of these things. Now the problem here is that, that uh, what um, David Frame says is, is simply not right, and he, he obfuscates and cherry-picks um, g- 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 what he wants to say to the farmers. But the situation is like this. The Wine garden and hamper paper is very robust science. It used well-known, well-accepted data, such as the temperatures up, changes with altitude and the change of concentration of greenhouse gases with altitude and the, uh, the spectral data from from, the, from uh, the global library of spectral data, and the high-resolution stuff, and they analysed every wavelength of infrared uh, that greenhouse gases absorb at. Now, that's over 300,000 different wavelengths that they examined for well, the total absorption right up through the atmosphere, up through 85 kilometres of the atmosphere. And they did that for three locations, the Mediterranean uh, desert, Sahara Desert and Antarctica. Uh, and they came out then with, with a, a, a chart of what the radiation to space should be at the various wavelengths. And that chart was then compared with what the satellites who were up there recording it all said. And the, the, the correlation was exceedingly good. Mm -hmm. Exceedingly good for for having taken only three locations and done only four altitudes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Their data came out very, very well. Now, the consequences of that paper were not as Mr. Frame, Dr. Frame said. What the paper showed was that if carbon dioxide doubled from 400 to 800, then it would produce a warming of about 0.65 degrees. Now, you wouldn't notice that. You wouldn't notice it in a day or a year, 0.65 degrees. We certainly wouldn't be having net zero if that was accepted. And then for methane and nitrous oxide, their effects are totally swamped by water vapor. And so their influence is insignificant. Now, that is not what uh, Professor David Frame said in his paper. He tried to make out it was all old hat and Uh, Nowhere to go. The big difference between what Weingarten and Happer showed is in the way that the uh, IPCC analyzes the effectiveness of these various gases. So the IPCC tells you that methane is 28 times worse than carbon dioxide. Mm. So we'll just have a look at that. Now, the Earth radiates infrared and... Everything radiates infrared. That, that's what your night cameras and your your night glasses and that pick up as infrared radiation and convert it to something you can see. So everything radiates infrared. There's only certain wavelengths which are trapped by the greenhouse gases. So let's take a little analogy. We take a cup, a glass cup of boiling water and we dip our tea bag in. Now, tea bag, tea is going to represent the methane. We dip our tea bag into it, whip it out, and we see a very, very faint tinge of brown tea colour. So we dip it in again, and the color intensifies. But we can still see through our cup. Now, that is about the effect of methane in the dry air, because the IPCC uses dry air, air devoid of water, which doesn't occur on Earth. Only in a laboratory, so they use this dry ear, and that's like the tea. You'd see it, and you see it has a dip it again. It has an effect, and you say, "Wow, look at that! It got a huge effect." Now we'll use the real world situation, and we'll take our cup of boiling water again, and we'll toss in three teaspoons of coffee, representing the water. Mm. Now, the moment we put that coffee in, you can't see through that cup. It's brown. Mm-hmm. It absorbs all the radiation that was on the other side of it. Now, you can dip your tea bag as much as you like. You're not going to see any color increase because the coffee has absorbed all the color, just it's as directed. water absorbs all the color, all the radiation in the atmosphere. Now, I had a, another scientist, uh, a guy by the name of Cork Hayden, professor of physics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he wrote something, and I wrote through Tom and to him to say, to ask some questions. And in giving me the answer to some of those questions, he pointed out that the photon path length of, carbon, of, of uh, radiation at 15 microns, that's the wavelength that carbon dioxide absorbs strongly at, the photon path length, that's the d- distance a photon of light photon of infrared will travel before it hits a greenhouse gas. Okay. The photon path length for carbon dioxide was 20 centimetres. So it means, on average, radiation from the Earth at 15 microns will, will be absorbed by a, a carbon dioxide within 15 centimetres, sorry, within 20 centimetres of the surface of the Earth. Mm-hmm. So I wrote to him and said, what about methane and water and he wrote back and he gave me all the calculations it's a standard physics calculation this it's not nothing nothing unique about it and the path length the average path length for a, a photon at uh, 7.65 microns that's where methane absorbs most strongly a photon of that wavelength will hit a methane in 250 metres, that goes 250 metres to hit a methane. A photon of the same wavelength to hit water in the tropics would be less than one millimetre, in New Zealand about four millimetres. So within four millimetres of the surface of the Earth, let's be generous and say, within one centimetre of the surface of the Earth, all the radiation coming off the Earth has been absorbed by water. What's left for methane to absorb? Nothing. Not much. Not much. Well, it's, it's proportion. It, it, it just adds to the, the absorbing molecules.
0: That's about 0.012%, Point zero zero one two percent forget which. So, so to, to, think- to, I don't want to put you off your subject, but just for the listener's benefit, physics is the um, discipline that has to, that is, um, required to understand warming effect of greenhouse gases. Physics is the preeminent or dominant discipline, isn't it?
2: That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, the thing that we, we, what happens is that the Earth sends, radiates this infrared and all of it gets absorbed. All of it gets absorbed within a few metres of the ground. It, the energy is then, uh, so a uh, uh, greenhouse gets Gets it receives a photon of infrared, it makes it we say it's energized that loses that energy in a collision w- within a billionth of a second. And then, uh, but another collision might re excite the molecule, and so it, it somewhere down the track it might radiate uh, that photon away, or it might be hit by another molecule and lose it. But that process occurs up through the atmosphere where collision. The energy, all the energy from the Earth by radiation is then just trapped by the atmosphere, warms the atmosphere slightly. And at the top of the atmosphere, where the molecules are much further apart and the amount, number of collisions are much less, mm. then a few more of these greenhouse gases get the opportunity to radiate to space. And this is why carbon dioxide is actually a major radiator to space, because at the altitude where that occurs – most of the water is frozen out, but it doesn't matter. Uh, the warming that was supposed to happen from carbon dioxide is simply not apparent in the data. So uh, the concept that that uh, increasing methane is going to cause warming is just utter nonsense. It is totally swamped by the effect of water. So we could do the, the physics experiment, in, 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 in not with our cup of coffee. The physics experiment is to have a glass tube, say, about a metre long. And at one end of it, you put a source of infrared uh, energy, and at the other end, you have a detector. Now, you have mirrors to make the light go back and forth through this metre tube, so you can get up to kilometres of of path length through this tube. If we have our our source set at 7.65, the peak radiation absorbed by methane, and we put it into our dry air, then we'll get what we got with a coffee cup. Put in methane, you will get a little bit of absorption, double your methane, you get a little bit more absorption, but the bulk of the radiation goes straight through. Now, if we do the same experiment, but we use ordinary air that's got water in, 15,000 parts per million water, then our detector doesn't detect anything. All of the radiation is absorbed by the water. And, so adding, adding methane is no
1: effect. And that's that's pretty much the conclusions that uh, Hapa and Garden's papers did, because what I said earlier, they are telling us to ignore what's in front of our eyes. That is, no, that's right. the, Their results were what I would call a model that I can get behind, because what their model predicted was collaborated by satellite data you could pretty much superimpose the two graphs on the top of each other. I, can, I could barely see, there's barely anything discernible, any difference. That's and right. yet, I, you know, under OIA, this uh, reporter wrote to the Climate Change Commission, this reporter from insign, uh, there's the names have been wiped out in the OIA, cabinet reporter insign, they wrote on 29 June this year, to a uh, climate commission saying that Kira, I'm a X, Y, a reporter for the ensign and in Gore. I'm doing a story about the climate change presentation here, where Dr. Tom Sheehan of America presented a talk in Gore about how methane is the irrelevant gas, claimed there's no climate emergency, and he claimed that William Van Garden and William Happer were the correct facts and are being ignored. What are your comments? Does methane have an effect? Are we in a climate emergency? What is farmers' role? Please get back to me by 12.30 the next day the Media Commission uh, of the Climate Commission wrote back saying that, thank you, but midday tomorrow is too tight. But meanwhile, have a look at our website about the role of methane. Then that person passed on to another scientist that, oh, Barkas, thank you for the response. Thank you for getting us a bit of grace time. I'm looking for another scientist to comment. And then they get a reply back. This reporter in Gord gets a reply back from a Marcus Tickley, in bracket, he, him. Principal Commissioner... Communications advisor, the Climate Commission, where it says, it begins with saying, at the Climate Change Commission, we assess, we base our assessment of causes and impacts of climate change on the basis of only established peer-reviewed science and the consensus of the world scientific community. And the consensus is that the Earth is warming due to greenhouse gases, and humans are primarily responsible. The Climate Change Commission is satisfied that the body of evidence for this is clear and unequivocal. End of story.
2: Yes, well... The, the, um, I, I I,
1: mean, where is the debate? Where is scientific discussion? Where is some robust, uh, you know, uh, statements back and forth about, all right, let's argue yes. this. Let's rip this to shreds. Let's see if I'm wrong or you're right. There is nothing. It's just like, boom, this yeah. is it. You accept this or else, you know, get lost. This is
2: why, this is why Frames' uh, denigration of Weingarten and Haber when he wouldn't even meet them. Uh, is quite disgusting, really, because the, 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 we have what I now refer to as the climate industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we are talking—we are talking untold trillions of dollars that are now being spent uh, in various ways on on the climate system, and uh, none of those people want this to change. Okay. They're uh, very yeah. comfortable with the money they're getting, whether it's subsidies for wind farms or, or whatever. the The thing here is that that uh, HEPA is probably one of the most distinguished scientists in America. John Clauser, mm-hmm. who recently received the Nobel Prize in Physics, commented on uh, Hepper and said, "You can trust anything Hepper says." I have a colleague in Dunedin, Jerry Carrington, who is Emeritus Professor of Physics at Otago University. And when I talked to him about Hapa some years ago, he said, oh, I know Happer. the science is sound. Now, contrary to what David Frame said, Happer's first paper in climate was in 1982, when I suspect that Frame was still at school. Yeah, And he has established an enormous reputation for the quality of his research. He's now 84 years old. And so uh, if a journal wants to publish a paper of HAPI's, which is going to undermine the whole of the climate scare business, then it's a very brave journal because they're going to get the opprobrium of everybody concerned. They don't want to do it.
1: And that's why and they so don't go there. They don't go into the nitty Peter. They no,
2: just. No, don't. So the, review, the review that the journal had, which he submitted to the paper to first, clearly didn't want it, it was so farcical that Happer said, I've, I've had enough of this. I'll, I'll stand on my own reputation. I'll publish independently, hmm. which is what he has done with that paper and about five others that followed it. Oh, yeah. there's plenty, so there's plenty we're dealing, of paper. We're dealing,
0: yeah. Sorry, sorry, Peter. There's, the, sorry. there's plenty of papers of Happer and Van Wingarden on that archive. Um, this, um, that's right. it's 2,800-odd papers in there on physics and stuff yes. that I read. I, well, I haven't read, I've, I've observed. Yes,
2: um, and, and people in the pharmaceutical industry are following suit because most of the research is dictated to and dominated by the big uh, advertiser and go. And, and to get independent publication, you've got to go outside of them. Mm-hmm. You know, they rule the journals. So, so Hapa right. is, is, a, is a guy of um, enormous standing, as I've said. Yes. Uh, and and for, for a minnow like Professor Frame, who no one overseas would know of probably, to criticise uh, a person of the stature of mm-hmm. Weingarten and Harper is uh, when he's refused to even talk to them is pretty disgusting.
0: Yeah, I and think I should know that even I feel yeah. f- f- pretty chipper because um William uh, happer wrote back to a colleague of ours and thanked um yours truly me for having the courage to write an article that was exposing the methane lie a year ago that uh the media again tried to dispel so i feel quite happy to have had a man like uh professor william happer say good job (laughs) dog yes yes absolutely (laughs) and one thing i
2: would like though is to say is that it would be really really good if your listeners uh, responded say whether they understood what i said about methane because Mm. If your readers can un- understood that well, then one has to say, why is it that our leaders of our agricultural industry are so incapable of understanding something so fundamentally simple as that water absorbs all the radiation?
1: Just, Methane does nothing. It's almost, you know, they don't want to. Upton Sinclair said it's difficult to get a man to see something if his salary depends on him not seeing that. The NEVA and That's the right. project was funded. million dollars and i i know listeners i am showing my eternal cynicism Mm -hmm. at the ripe old age of nearly 40 45 i think i'm entitled to it but yeah it's it's a case of you're
2: you're you're absolutely right just speak now i I think i mentioned last time an ongoing correspondence with james renick yeah we went through about four different points like uh that carbon dioxide would have to rise before Climate warming and fall before, and uh, the, the the atmosphere must lead the warming, not not the sea surface. So, so, over the over the correspondence, we went through these items, and he couldn't give me any in, any uh, situation where where carbon dioxide had risen before a temperature, and he couldn't explain uh, why the sea surface should warm. He tried to put on back radiation, but we we, we defeated that. And then, so in my last one, I had four bullet points. And he made a few comments and then said, I totally reject your four bullet points, which were the four things that we had been discussing for the last, which he was being unable to refute what I'd said. So here it is, you know, you get to, because if he accepted those four points, he would have to say that carbon dioxide doesn't do anything either. And, and that was a step too far. So he, he had to reject the whole lot. <laughs> Yeah, you know that the, the uh, that's exactly me, what you're saying, Jesper. That, that, you know the, when the salary depends on it, they don't want to know.
0: <laughs> the thing that gets it for me is, um, you know, New Zealand has been hell bent on demonising uh, ruminant animals for 25 years. You know, these ruminant animals are the problem. The key, the key thing for me in all of this is that it doesn't matter the source. Methane from any source is irrelevant. Uh, in the scheme of the warming effect to the planet, in a mixed um, atmosphere. And that's something that clearly um, uh, is, is ignored by many. The mixed atmosphere is ignored. And I, I watched a webinar last week with William Van Weingarten, and his he he said this is a worst-case scenario, now I'm paraphrasing, and he used a clear sky uh, um regime when in actual fact the world is on average covered with 65 percent cloud most of the time so he ignored clouds and he put up the worst case scenario there was nothing scary in it um, that his output uh, disclosed so um, methane nitrous oxide uh, close to zero effect on warming Uh, it's so minor it shouldn't be demonized the thing that to, to, to professor frame's credit though uh peter he did at least expose uh an issue um that the ipcc did acknowledge as useful which is that the global warming potential concept was inaccurate um many of us think it's irrelevant but um, at least frame did come to that point where he um mentioned that um that the effect of methane and nitrous oxide or methane especially was three to four percent times overstated so he opened the can a little bit but then he decided to shut it down because he seems to think that we should be paying for historic warming now my point is this if methane from any source is irrelevant there's no way any animal in New Zealand's o- the owners of New Zealand animals should be paying for any past warming because it's irrelevant so right. they've shot themselves in the foot. And yet, yep. you're right. We have no farm leaders and no politicians willing to face the truth, and that's an indictment on all of them. And it's something that um, people like you and and others in our cohort are trying to expose. Yes, um, well, I think I think for Frame to come out as
2: he did in the in the podcast and in the Farmers Weekly, he's obviously been rattled by Sheehan's visit and the consequences of it but unfortunately not rattled enough
0: (laughs) yeah well it it is wrong when um you know scientists of repute can't um interact and I I sense the frustration of William Happer and um even Van Weingarten on, on webinars I've watched them on when they just don't want to get into the debate with people that just um have been so awkwardly disposed to them in the past they just they yeah. just say that their job is to present the science it's for other people to challenge it uh, respectfully and refute it they're not going to get into a slanging match in the public about it
2: oh mm. will see no one no one has actually refuted what they have said uh, they, they their response has been to ignore it rather than to even look at it mm. Mm. and know, which shows
0: it's not the way science goes I remember you came up with a graph uh, at the Balclutha meeting with Tom Sheehan that I actually chaired, and um, you put up a graph that showed that um, extrapolating out what uh, was presented in that Invercargill forum meant that the warming was how much uh, over a, about a century from methane? It was hardly measurable, oh, was it? 0. Oh, yeah, so it was,
2: on his figures,
0: the warming over 250
2: years from the entire New Zealand livestock industry was 1.8 thousandths of a degree. 1.8
1: thousandths? Uh, if we took 000. it from
2: 2000 to 2100, uh, he showed a slower rate of warming from then on, I guess because of less livestock, I'm not sure, but that was turned out to be about one millionth of a degree per year, uh, which
0: uh, Good, good luck if you can measure that. <laughs> and, and, and and listeners, I just should remind a few months ago, Jaspreet and I highlighted an American senator did, the, did some back-of-the-envelope numbers and he got to $1.4 or $1.6 quadrillion to uh, get to this net zero net nirvana zero. Um, that the world aspires – well, sorry, some of the world aspires to. Um, that seems to have the wheels falling off it at the moment in the Northern Hemisphere at least. Uh, long may it uh, continue and drift south.
2: Um, well, I've, I've showed the data of um, born lomberg uh, who mm. you can use the the ipcc's climate models you know they're actually free for people to get in and use and what what they had done is to take out the reduce the expected carbon dioxide by the amount the paris accord countries had agreed so they said if if all the countries kept their paris accord commitments through to 2100, then the reduction from the expected temperature would be 0.17 degrees. So all of this pain of decarbonisation and the destruction of your economy is for 0.17 degrees, and that's assuming all of them keep their commitments. Well, India has just said it's going to increase coal by 60%. China is carrying on building two coal-fired power stations a week. Uh, you know the wheels fall off our society if we we close down fossil fuels.
1: They, you know, uh, HapagWand Garden. They had also written another paper. They they have also written another paper, and this this was in twenty twenty one about the relative potency of greenhouse molecules. Now, someone sent this one to Neva as well in that same OIA that I'm reading. And they said that, you know, this particular article is there and this paper is there. And what do you think about it? And they are like, they simply, I mean, I can't even believe this is how they write, but they said, this paper by Hapa Van Garden seems to have had no peer review and is not actually published in a general. It's published online. And my initial check suggests that the conclusions may be questionable and would you uh, he sends it to another neva scientist felicia <coughs> and felicia can you have a look and felicia kolanjari says hi all i have had a look at this paper by Hapa baimen garden on the relative potency of greenhouse molecules and the way it is laid out and the leaps in arguments made this sort of paper would not get past a first cut review in any j- journal in any case, it's important that our scientific base is founded in the peer review process. And since the link we've been emailed is not about a peer-reviewed publication, may I suggest we respond to that email with the following. To ensure the quality of evidence considered by the Climate Change Commission, we focus on peer-reviewed publications. The article you've asked does not appear, and so we will not review it. Cheers, Felicia. And uh, looking at Felicia's Profile. She's a senior NEVA climate scientist. She has worked in Canada. She's right now the New Zealand Climate Change Commission. Then Environment and Climate Change Canada, University of Toronto, PhD. You you wonder how yep. these people think? Are they denying the credentials of the person, or because they? De- if there is something I don't agree with, and I'm at the pain of repeating myself here, I would go through it argument by argument. This does not stack up. this It's like something my children come up with me, and, oh, mom, we saw this, and I'm like, I haven't read this in a book. I'm not even going to look at that, what you've got me. That's
2: right. Yep. Uh, it's, it's just a its a means of denial. It's a means yeah. of putting aside something you don't want to deal with that you can't come up with any cogent scientific response. So you, you write it off on the basis that uh, your pals don't like it. Yes. So, therefore, we're not
1: going to take any notice of it. And and the moment this lady, Felicia, she responds, in jumps a Dr. Phil Wiles from Niva, and he says, Eg- I agree, Felicia, we need to be a bit careful because not all of the sources we use at the Climate Commission are peer-reviewed, <laughs> as you have suggested in the, in the email. However, you would expect articles of this type to have gone through a peer-review process. I have collated my thoughts into a draft. What do you think? Good to go, and he has sort of... Uh, you know wishy-washy what she has said that only peer review and they've said we keep an eye on (laughs) you so it becomes available the IPCC Mm -hmm. assessment reports provide a summary so on so forth and then there's another one responding that looks pretty good Phil these are supposedly doctors who PhDs who are not even going to read a document or go into the core arguments they're arguing amongst themselves about semantics And these guys decide the future of our lives, our children's
2: lives. You you think about it this way, though. If we take Harry Clark, he runs the Greenhouse Gas Research Centre in Palmerston North.
1: Mm.
2: They've had something between one hundred and two hundred million million and $200 million of research funding in the last 10 years. Mm. He's about to get a new building, a new research facility, costing $340 million. Does Harry Clark going to hold his hand up and say, I believe Weingarten have Of course not, of course not. He's preserving his patch, and so was David Frame. Uh, It wasn't an intelligent response. It was it was the herd mentality uh, of this is what we think collectively, and what you think I don't care. Uh, We're going to protect our income and our status, and and so Uh, David, David Frame sits on all these bodies where he, he's the, the advisor of them, so he carries a lot of mana, he's well paid, uh, he's got status. He's not going to throw that away
0: with some paper that can't even get past peer review, heaven's sake. <laughs> well, and of course, listeners, um, yeah, that what, what Peter's just said exposes that not only are farmers and their um, processing companies and industry levies being used to fund um some sort of um science facilities in in this case massey uh taxpayers are also so you as listeners are also funding this um, and that is uh something that you need to have your eyes wide open about clearly uh what peter has just said it's all about uh self-interest rather than much else and as a farmer who has been fighting this stuff for 30 plus years you just get sick of it um but people look at you with a straight face and saying but it's my job don it's my job they're so passionate about their job and I understand it's their job uh but it's also something that I couldn't do I couldn't be dishonest with anybody over this stuff if you know that you you're milking it have the courage to say you got it wrong and um we can all go home and have some sleep (laughs) <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> so 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 peter um, look it's great that you've got your, your passion and um and your yeah you know, this is obviously your your background in science you've done it uh you know your, your whole career and it's not for everybody but this stuff when it comes to hit the pointy end of who pays for what um, I think we all need to take a very big interest in this. We're an exporting country. We use animal agriculture as our pre- predominant export earner, and we keep deriding it every day in the media uh, from this perspective of climate Armageddon. I mm. I don't know how long we can have the lie continuing. Uh, I, I just need the next crop of politicians to stand tall, and God knows we don't seem to have them indicating much at the moment. But no, We sure don't. The first no, hundred you, days, you, they should do it.
2: You know, like, remember that fable about the boy who cried wolf? Yeah. Except, that you know, one day the wolf did come. But, you know, <laughs> how long do you cry wolf before society says, come on, come on? I mean, 30 years, uh, come November, We've had thirty years of Armageddon. That's ten years away. Mm-hmm. So Armageddon should have happened at least twenty years ago. We're still waiting for it. It hasn't happened yet. That's the you know the, 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 the other one is uh, the the and little guys falling. Well, well, well. <laughs>
1: yeah. And and was, what passes for falling. research? I mean, it it is not even worth printing, worth the paper it's printed on. I. I yeah. A couple of, uh, I think, episodes ago, I mentioned that this new article has come on the Journal of Psychology, how manicures are good for mental health of women, right? Whatever that yeah. means. I haven't indulged in one myself. This article came out uh, on from the MIT Press earlier this month about the oligopolies shift to open access, how the big five academic publishers profit from article processing charges. Now, what's happened in sciences? that the five bigger journals, journals, not generals, just breathe, the five big journals at one time readers used to pay to view articles. And some in a, some still do. But what's happening is they are now charging people who are you know coming up with research to be to publish them. So the five main bigger ones have pocketed one point zero six billion American dollars in the past four years, and according to the study by MIT, this sum covers only the fees to publish to publish open access articles, not the other ones. And they say, you know, the system, they call it publish or perish. Unless you have published articles, you, yes. you don't quite make the cut. You don't soar high yeah. in the ranks. But what it's done is it's given rise to a huge business with perverse incentives to produce more and more in substantial studies, publishers and money researchers pay path that resumes a little or no efforts, the manicure and the psych- yeah. psychological, this thing being a case in point.
2: Yes. it is
1: with your science.
2: <laughs> the whole peer-reviewed process is is, is in question.
1: It yeah. is. Maybe and it's,
2: it's, and it's that's a science convenient... for a while, but, for a while, but <clears throat>
0: and now it's our well review. and politicized and, well, uh, all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, as a layman, I anything any time I heard peer review, I thought this is what I have to take notice of. This is it. This yeah. is the this is the primo um, outcome here. But now I'm aware it's politicized uh, in a lot of cases. I'm not saying all. Um, there's a lot of predators and parasites there, and uh, I think we're um, it's we're right to be cynical now. And uh, sadly, I don't know how how to uh, how to assist cleaning it out science needs a clean out um it does and it does just, a real clean out we yeah. need some strong people some strong people to stand up and say uh we want to get back and as a former to, to truth and as a former um guest of ours, said yeah ja- harder from the netherlands said you should always question but is this true Yes. And I've uh, I've sat on those words for the last two or three weeks thinking, gosh, they're they really strong words. But, but is this true? Well, the motto so, of the
2: Royal Society is take nobody's word for it. At the moment, oh. uh, the, <laughs> they don't oh. seem to follow their own uh, motto.
1: No, nah, nah, they don't seem to. And uh, it was so far for a long time, it's only been ruminant animals that have been demonised. Right yes. now, what's happening is, your uh, food scraps are being demonized new zealanders yes. you know they are being demonized so it's it's the pain is going to get really personal for all of us please you know if you're still thinking this is a rural new zealand oh those uh, winding farmers again you have another thing yeah. coming you have another thing coming here and the yeah. sort of money that's being blown up in a country where your health system is struggling, your education system is struggling. The lesser said of the road network, the better. And we seem to think food scraps are going to give us climate nirvana. Oh, gosh, it doesn't, you know, you don't need to be a physicist to understand this is all a load of nonsense. And then we want to monetize and
0: financialize biodiversity as well so that the men in suits can have another go. I mean, it just never ends, never ends. So, so look, I I think we should draw this to a close, uh, Peter. Um, Yeah, we probably diverted you from your real attention on methane. I know I did. Uh, Sorry about that. Um, I think we got the main points. (laughs) We got the main points out. Uh, Look, this show was never supposed to be about climate, but uh, it was supposed to be about greenwashing, and a whole lot of um, other things seem to come into mind of that. But, you know, no matter what we do, we all seem to come back in a New Zealand sense, anyway, to climate change policy in this country is the ultimate greenwashing going on in this country today. And uh, yeah, like I'm repeating myself now. I just hope that the next government has the courage to actually put the stoppers on. I'm not holding my breath, but uh, for the sake of for the sake of all New Zealand taxpayers and ratepayers, yes. um, we've got to do something because uh, I know the signals about rate increases next year. Um, uh, and our local councils are just out of the ballpark. So, look, yep. Peter, thanks for coming on twice uh, in two weeks. I, I know you've really struggled to get through today. I mean, I wish you all the best <laughs> in your, your health and hopefully <laughs> get on top of that. But um, you've been a bit of a true folk getting through, so thank you, and we'll have you back. We'll have you okay. back. It's fantastic. Okay. Thank okay, thanks. So okay,
1: bye-bye. Bye-bye. Just Breet Boparai and Don Nicholson
0: with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio.